This episode of the Series A podcast is brought to you by the Blockchain Founders Fund. The Blockchain Founders Fund is a global entrepreneurship and investment fund that focuses on adding value to emerging technology and blockchain projects with real-world applications. The Blockchain Founders Fund supports seasoned and first-time entrepreneurs across the key business functions with a hands-on intensive go-to-market venture program. Now on to this fantastic new episode. So today we are together with Andrew Bate, who is founder and co-CEO of BitDAP, um, a company, uh, internet-based company uh, based in uh, Vancouver, though. Uh, Andrew, uh, good morning and welcome to the Series A podcast, the podcast where we mostly talk about uh, venture capital. I love it. I love venture and I'm excited to be here. So uh, thanks a bunch and, and so, uh, hopefully it's be uh, fun. That's awesome. So let's start uh, by asking you if you have uh, raised any VC money or if you are about to do so. Of both. So um, in the current company I have now, we raised uh, 3.2 million previously USD. Um, the last raise was actually in September 2019. So almost uh, was a year and a half ago. Um, the funny thing is of the 3.2, we still have 2 million in the bank. So we've been extremely capital efficient, I would say. Um, the, there's some reasons for that we can get into later, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, previous to this, I've raised you know, over 50 million for other companies. So this isn't my first company. I've built a, a number of other companies previous. And so um, I've raised you know, 50 million plus uh, for other ventures. And I think that, um, you know, every time it becomes a little easier and harder <laughs> the expectations are uh, higher and then also it's it's you know what you're getting into so maybe your motivation it, it's harder to get started because you know you know what you're getting into for you know it's a, when you're naive it's a lot easier to to just sort of like do it the first time i think it gets harder and harder the more you've done it uh, a little bit so it's still fun though that's great so uh, andrew why don't you talk to us a little bit about your background and uh, what uh, led you to co-found uh, BitDAP before we talk about BitDAP and what it does? Yeah, so um, my background actually started in film and television. I, uh, you know, a very close family friend uh, spotted me selling raffle tickets at a charity event and thought that I would make a good agent and offered me to start uh, interning at her agency. And so, um, I started as a film and TV agency. We used to represent writers, directors, producers, mostly for uh, you know uh, family animation and, and book properties that became movies. So we represented them on the film and TV side. So it was a really fun experience. I learned a ton about contract reviews, uh, you know, net revenue definitions, a lot of redlining contracts. Uh, the benefit of working with a bunch of lawyers is you learn a lot about how lawyers think. I did that for years. Um, I really thought I wanted to be a literary agent. I think one day I woke up and realized I did not want to do that. Uh, it was sort of like one of those jobs that everyone wanted, so I wanted it. And by the time I got there, I realized I did not like it. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it was difficult. It was a hard transition to make, but I got to work on some really cool stuff. I mean, the agency and, and my exposure to the the properties we worked on were were incredible. You know, we did Hugo, which was up for Best Picture, had like forty nominations. Uh, we sold Hunger Games for Suzanne Collins. Um, we did Taylor Despero, uh, just a ton of really amazing, you know, film and TV 
projects that I was, uh, you know, I got to be a, a really big part of. And, and uh, I was one of the first people, as an example, ever to read Hunger Games. It sat on my desk for a couple months in manuscript form. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty awesome. There's like a bunch of really cool experiences from that. I started investing around that time. So I actually became an investor first before an entrepreneur because I wasn't really sure what to do with the money that I was making. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know a lot about investing. So all of my investments were extremely poor but I wanted to learn. So I started angel investing into things I thought were cool. So I opened a bar with some friends. Uh, we became like one of the top five bars in Los Angeles. We were like an official food partner for Coachella for a couple of years. And we, you know, we grew that business. We threw like 10,000 person block parties. It was a really crazy experience. The restaurant went for 12 years. It was really fun, but not really in technology. Um, I invested in these kids that were building Facebook games at the end of 2006 when it was still EDU based, uh, 2006-7. So at the time, you could only talk to kids at your own university. You couldn't talk to them between campuses. So they built this game that allowed you to enter the game and talk to people in different campuses. And at the time, I was still an agent. So I thought, oh, this will be perfect for film and TV. We'll build an audience around a property and help package that to the studios. And it'll, be, it'll make the value of the overall property higher because it'll have a built-in audience. It didn't really work that way. It's too far removed. Like if you have an audience that's, you know, a couple million people and they have to wait four years for the movie to come out, it just doesn't, it's not, it doesn't carry that same impact as like an, an immediate audience to release something. So we started thinking about how to use it for, for music. And we took three people, um, two of them were signed artists. One was signed uh, under the Black Eyed Peas, I believe. And um, we, we decided to build an audience around them using this tool. Like, can we promote it to all the college campuses? We had a music player that was embedded. So it's funny because it's like, it's almost like the original playlist. Like people were listening to our playlists and being exposed to artists that way. So we, we did it that way. We found this kid at a bonfire in Nantucket, which is like a small town uh, in the Northeast of, of the US. And we thought if we can make this guy you know, a college soccer player, a rapper, it would be really hilarious. Uh, and also a great use case of how we can build an entire process around launching an artist using our technology. So we did that. We built him up over a year and a half and he went number one iTunes, number seven billboard over like every major artist, completely independent with no label. And everyone freaked out because they thought we cheated the system somehow. Like no one figured out like how, how can you possibly just release an artist and he goes through the charts like that. And this, this concept of owning power users or like really poor fans hadn't really dawned on them in a direct-to-consumer way. Everyone went through traditional distribution. And so um, from there, we signed a lot of different labels. Uh, labels came to us and said, can you do the same thing with our artists? And we ended up becoming a, a quite large agency um, you know, with, with a lot of people that we ended up selling in, in uh, 2011 to, to another agency. So that's kind of how that went along the way we started getting out of music so we're like okay let's work on some uh consumer brand stuff like it's the same lifestyle like music and, and entertainment are linked together what about you know like fashion and sports so we started looking a lot at different at different pieces so we did a couple fashion brands uh that part is part of the agency my favorite was actually a snowboard brand so there was a snowboard brand i became quite quite close he's still a very very good friend um I think they're awesome and, and they're called Signal Snowboards. Uh, and at the time they were like 17th in their market. So we thought, can we build a YouTube show? They were, they were really doing this YouTube content, but can we build this show and distribute the show 
in a way that would help them gain way more traction to move them. And that's exactly what happened. The show became a hit. Uh, we actually produced a, an episode every month and it, it blew up and we were getting hundreds of thousands of views per episode and helped sell direct to consumer and remove the need of retail where you're going through retailers where you get squeezed. So in the snow industry, you might not get paid until August and then they expect stuff in September, October for the next season, but they're not going to pay you for like the whole year. So if you're manufacturing this stuff, you actually have to manufacture it in January, February, March. So you need to be able to predict which stores will still be in business, who's actually going to pay you, find up, find the cash flow. It's a very difficult business to be in. So if you can somehow go direct to consumer, you can remove a lot of that burden. You can actually produce one-tenth the amount of snowboards and make more money. So that's kind of the, the insight we had. Uh, what, was the, well. what was the what was what was the the content of the show? The show is super awesome. It's called Every Third Thursday, and uh, the guys who started it, Dave and, and Mark, are incredible. They basically make a crazy snowboard within 24 hours, one day a month. So the thing is, we owned the factory, like Signal owned the factory, and so every Thursday, every third Thursday, they would come together, and you have a, a day to make the craziest snowboard you can, and see if it's still rideable. Uh, so. They built, as an example, an all-glass snowboard. They flew to Italy. They built it in a, uh, a windshield manufacturing plant, and they built the world's first all-glass snowboard. They did another snowboard with Leatherman Tool Company. It was called a survival board. So every piece of the board broke apart. So the concept was if you get stuck in backcountry, could you survive? There's like a fishing pole in there. It, like part of the top broke in and do a shovel so you can make a snow, like a, a, a snow uh, cave. There was all kinds of crazy stuff related to it. We built the world's first um, iPad snowboard. So there was actually an iPad in the snowboard. Uh, you know, it was it was really cool. So the bottom actually lit up like an apple sign. Like it actually, the bottom had like the, the see-through light. And then on the top was the, the display. Um, there was uh, one other one was a really cool X Games one we did with X Games. So every snowboard became a paintball gun. And so the trigger you would handhold but the hopper and the thing that holds the paintballs and the, and the barrel and everything was on the board. So as pros were hitting jumps and doing flips and in the half pipe, they're actually shooting each other midair. So it was like very aerial. It was like, it was super cool. We did another one with Activision for, uh, you know, we built um, the world's first uh, bulletproof snowboard <laughs> for the Call of Duty release. Um, that was really epic. We built the world's first surfboard snowboard mix. So It was actually a surfboard that was shaped by a, a pretty famous uh, you know, uh, surfboard shaper. And then fins could go into it and you would actually surf the mountain then. And it became a snowboard on top. And so one of the world's best surfers, Rob Machado, went and shredded it on the water. And then the same day, they flew up to Baldface and they, they literally like, took this thing backcountry and were shredding powder with a surfboard that was a hybrid mix. It was really awesome. Okay, so Andrew, we can obviously talk about snowboarding all day. Long, but, <laughs> uh, why I suggest we move on to uh, Sorry. your current startup. Uh, yeah, so, so I guess the point was I, I've done a lot of these different ventures. Uh, you know, from the snowboard brand where I was going was that I met some really amazing investors who um, were, they invested in this company that won audience choice at TechCrunch. It was a peer-to-peer -peer bicycle sharing, like Airbnb for bikes. And they were like, look, um, you understand the consumer market side, the marketing side, do you want to get into pure tech? And so I went and jumped into that. We scaled that company. We had operations, you know, different cities, 17 cities with users from 100 countries. 
Um, that grew really quickly. It was venture backed and, and that was really awesome. Then from there, I jumped to a B2B platform in healthcare. And I was like, look, I don't have B2B, but it's the same, you know, growth tactics or growth tactics. I should be able to do this. I helped the B2B software company go from uh, nine people to 120 people in 18 months. So I scaled that up really quickly. What was um, your uh, role in that startup? Head of growth uh, COO. Basically, I, I came in like they were all first time founders. So in that startup, my the, the like, how do we scale this company? Originally, I thought it would be in marketing. It actually wasn't in marketing. It was mostly all in sales ops. So really structuring the sales tech uh, tech stack, how we were going to operationalize it, what the KPIs needed to be, correlation analysis for managing a team, growing the sales team from two to 72 people. Um really like managing at scale and then going down the path. So once you had the, once you had the uh, KPIs and Northstar metrics figured out, how do you get them time to value and ramped up faster? So taking a sales rep from four months to six weeks before they're profitable, how do you recruit? How do you move recruiting into core competencies for, um, you know, training? Uh, so there, there's just a lot of different things that happen at scale in a sales team that you have to figure out. And we sort of just, I took a growth mindset and tested our way there. So I was constantly testing our strategies. And uh, was, was that a venture backed uh, company? It was, uh, it took venture money. We raised uh, 8 million, but it was, uh, it was mostly backed by actually family offices, not typical VCs. Uh, was it profitable? Well, for sure, yeah, they're still around today. Yeah, they're, um, my the the whole point was I kind of knew who was going to acquire them. We, that was already a little bit like spoken for. We we knew who the potential partner would be. It was a large publicly traded company in the healthcare space, uh, and so the goal was how much market share could be captured before an acquisition event. That was the entire that was the entire focus was growing them to that point. And okay. so knowing what the end point is, it becomes easier to operationalize for it. And so that's kind of um, that's kind of what we did. And so in that process, I'm flying to LA all the time. That's what brought me to Canada. I moved to Canada here for that job. And I'm flying to LA constantly back to LA where we came from to go to football games. And one of my, my now co-founder, we were at a football game with the, a bunch of executives from a major brand called Entertainment One. And they said, look, like, you know, there's discrepancies. It's hard to know how many times a song is played. So what happens is today a streaming service reports their own numbers. A streaming service, like any streaming service, you name one, uh, they give a report at the end of every month to the label and say, Snoop Dogg did 100 million plays and we had 500 million plays total. So Snoop Dogg did 20% of the total plays on our platform. The reason that matters is that music labels get a percentage of revenue. They get a percentage of subscription fees and advertising revenue based on play count. So if their artist was told they did 20%, but it turns out that he did 30%. They, they accidentally invoiced for the wrong amount of money and they don't catch it for three or four years because they don't audit. Uh, their typical audit is every three years. So if, if, today's, if, if I'm wrong today, I might not catch it until 2024. And, and then uh, I have to go and fight for that. Spotify does this uh, reporting? Yeah, and every streaming service, they do their own reporting. There's not a third party person that, or a company that's checked that's doing the reporting. And that was the initial insight we had was that streaming finally was taking out. When you think about it, in 2013, streaming was saving the industry and every label was just excited to have money because you know typically a label would do a one-time purchase. They made money when an album sold or was digitally downloaded. 
to have something that was constantly paying you and your whole back catalog that songs you've owned for decades are finally worth something. You're getting paid off them every time they're being streamed. It's a huge cash cow originally. So like the thought is, oh, we're doing really well. Let's not rock the boat. As no one really thought streaming would win. So then as you hit 2016 and 17, it becomes clear streaming is the new consumption model and it is now making up the majority of our revenue and will continue to do so and cannibalize the rest of our business. How do we start tracking this more efficiently because we think we're leaving money on the table. When, you, when you're when you 10 to 15% off, like who cares when it's a million dollars, but when you're 10 to 15% off in an $11 billion a year you know, tr transfer, that's, that's, a, that's one to $2 billion that's missed, that's incorrect. That's a lot of money for these players. So that's when they started saying, we need a tool that can track the number of times a song is actually played. And the reason is we went and called a bunch of labels that we knew from the space from previous. And it turned out that every single audit was, uh, was every single audit proved that there was a, dis a discrepancy. So in every single report that a label was given that where they had audited for that time period, um, the, the best case scenario was 8% under and the worst case was 31%. But either way you look at it, if you take a band of 10 to 15%, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar misallocation uh, or, or under invoicing. So it was always under? Yeah, never over. Okay. Uh, do you have clients, individual artists? No, we primarily, well, I mean, theoretically we could. So a large independent artist who owns their own music. The reason we don't is that actually most labels own, the way an artist works is when you get signed as a big artist, you typically don't actually own most of your sound recording. Uh, the label owns owns your recordings. And so even if you're an artist and you want to use BDAP, uh, our company, you typically can't, you're not authorized to, to to track or audit, you're not the one with the deal. The labels, what you're missing here is that it's very nuanced, but in the music industry, there is a statutory rate. Basically, there's a certain amount that has to be paid or threshold paid per song play for publishing, which is the underlying like, you know, uh, sheet music and lyrics, like someone owns the work part and someone owns what sings it. So every song has two copyrights, the, the song and the sheet music, and then the person who sings it, which is the sound recording. So most of the industry is, like there's statutory government rates and like in international rates on how many times, you know, what, what should be paid out for the publishing side. The label, the sound recording side is the only free market side. It's, it's not covered. It is a negotiated thing between the parties. And so the labels negotiate their own rates with the streaming services. And it's always generally on a rev shared deal. And because it's not statutory regulated, there's not the same like government oversight or um, you know, uh, I would call it rigor around the reporting structures for it. And so, and if you think about it from the streaming service side, being the best at reporting does not help you. Like if I'm the absolute best at reporting, who cares? Like my job is to deliver the best content possible and the best format possible for my users and their retention. It's not to tell you exactly how many times something is played. If I'm close and close enough, we should all be happy. But Okay, so Andrew, yeah. Tell us about the technology that you guys built in order to approximate uh, more accurately uh, the numbers. And uh, how do you charge for it? I mean, how do you guys make money? Yeah, so it was really difficult. We built a blockchain, a proprietary blockchain protocol. So uh, 
basically what happens is as a song is played, uh, let's call it from, um, I'll use Deezer since you're in, the, in Europe. So um, let's say Deezer is playing a song and, and you are playing a song on Deezer. What happens is as you request the song, so you're saying, hey, I wanna play Snoop Dogg and it's now loading in your phone. Um, it's being sent to your phone from, from the streaming service. At that same time that you requested the song, like whether you know it in the background, like you've queued it, it's on a playlist, whatever, that same request is going into our blockchain network. And effectively what happens in our network is everyone owns computers or nodes. And so you have the label that owns the computer, the streaming service that owns one and us that own one. And we say, hey, we recognize Andrew. He's played at least 30 seconds of this song. He hasn't played it more than 10 times in 24 hours. He's on a revenue generating tier. So it's not a free promo tier where no royalties are due. There's a number of these business rules that have to be met for it to count for a revenue generating play. And only after all of those things have been satisfied, those conditions are satisfied, does each party sign that receipt. So in real time, what's happening for every single play is that's going into this network all three stakeholders are agreeing this, in fact, should count towards a revenue generating play, and they're signing that receipt. So what you not only have is a uh, tracking log, but a reconciled real-time tracking log for audit. So everyone has agreed on a per unit or per play basis that this one counts, which then gives authenticity and accuracy for the overall play count. So that is how our system works. We're sitting in the background. We don't interrupt or stop the content from being delivered. We're just tracking as the song goes and having every party sign off that that song should in fact count. And we help then the labels reconcile. So at the end of the month, when Spotify or Deezer gives their report to a label, they can take that report and compare it to our numbers and say, hey, there's a discrepancy here of 12%. And here is all the signatures and receipts for all of those plays we need to reconcile this invoice now not four years from now okay and we, for that we charge the we charge the labels a percentage of, of revenue okay that was my question uh yeah. how do you make money you charge a percentage can you talk about this percentage does it have to do with the discrepancy no it, it doesn't uh, i mean in a roundabout way it does because we know what the discrepancy likely is going to be and so what we typically do is we charge up, we negotiate a percentage with the label of the overall stream. So let's say a label is doing $100 million a year from a streaming service. We will charge them roughly 1%, but we're likely going to find them 10 to 15%. So let's say and take it in hard numbers, if you're doing $100 million in revenue now on a streaming service, we can likely find you $15 million a year. So you'll make $115 million, of which we charge you a million dollars. That is how we're priced today. Um, and we, we do it that way for a number of reasons. One, it's actually illegal in some regions or not allowed to be contingency-based auditor. So we cannot actually price it directly to the discrepancy. We have to set a flat fixed fee and that is just like a requirement. So in order to determine what that fixed fee should be because every label and every streaming service could be unique and different, we run a pilot for three months, figure out how big the discrepancy gap is, and then we set a hard fixed cost on a multi-year contract for those labels. Okay, so let's go back to our uh, initial comments about your bank account. You said you raised three and a half million and you still got uh, two of them in your bank account. W what do you do with the money? Why do you need, uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> and why are you raising more? Yeah, so the big reason, the, uh, 
so the reason we're raising money is to go faster. Um, it, so if you think about it, every like a blockchain is expensive, right, to run, and so is the server and processing. At scale, it's fine. At scale, our margins are over ninety percent. But to turn a streaming service on to begin with, I'm not just turning on, you know, Universal's like catalog. I have to track every song played on that streaming service, which is billions of, of transactions, billions of streams. So the issue becomes to turn on these large streaming services, it might actually cost you two, three, four, like to get all the stream. We have 18 streaming services right now in our pipeline um, that represent 890 million monthly active users. So if we turn them all on, which is by the way, 22% of the global users uh, that are subscribed. So if you turn all of those on from our pipeline, it's gonna cost us roughly five to $6 million. So the issue becomes, we have this, it's a winner take most situation. There will be one company we believe that is the industry standard for the infrastructure for streaming. We believe we can be the infrastructure player for the streaming economy in terms of reporting, fraud detection. So one of the other things that from all this usage behavior we have is we can identify anomalies better than any single like silent data set. Data set. So we can provide that back to streaming services and say, look, like not only, we don't just audit, we actually help save you 10% of fraud that's going on on your platform. We save you a lot of money from fraud. So what's interesting here is that, you know, um, like there's this massive cost of turning these on and winning the industry quickly. So if we go slowly and turn one on, wait to monetize it, turn the next one on, wait to monetize it, turn the next one on, we could spend five years to get to the same place as just raising around right now and turning them all on as quickly as possible and owning this industry in one big swoop before anyone else can come in. That is why. The reason we haven't done the 2 million is um, on the 2 million side that we have left, we were lucky. So the Canadian government matched a lot of funds. So even though we raised 3 million, we probably got close to two or 3 million, like a little over two or 3 million more money from the Canadian government. So they gave us non-dilutive grants. So we were able to spend that money instead of invest your money. The other thing is that um, when COVID hit, a lot of wage subsidies hit as well. And so to like make sure that people maintain jobs and et cetera. So we're exactly the same cash position now as we were in January, 2020, um, which it, but our team has doubled in size. So it's been you know an interesting turn of events for us, maybe that we didn't expect. But the long and short of it is that 2 million is not enough to turn on all the streaming services and mitigate risk. And what we have is this opportunity to go much faster, which is why we're like, that's when we, when we modeled it out, we said, look, it's better for everyone, better returns, higher returns, higher ROI, faster time, reduced risk. Like we should just take the money now, as opposed to trying to eke out and worry about dilution and go slowly. And what is the biggest streaming service that you have in your platform? Uh, I can't tell you right now because okay. it's gonna there'll be a, there'll be a public announcement about it. But it's uh, seventy million mm -hmm. monthly active users is the largest one that we have right now, so quite substantial. Okay, can you tell me what is your current valuation? Yeah, so uh, you'll probably hate that answer too. The valuation will be whatever the market sets it as. <laughs> I think that it's likely going to be somewhere between. Uh, 35 to 45 million dollar post money that, that's my expectation and what are you looking to raise right now we're looking to raise 8 million we already have 4 million of it uh committed so it's really just finding the lead to set the terms so we have a million of follow-on from our current investors we have a million and a half of 
uh, strategic money, uh, like people that are, have written basically um, people who are likely going to get cut out of the rounds who wanted to get in early. So they signed safe notes to roll into the round. And then we have a million and a half of artist money, like A-list artists, managers, uh, industry insiders who want to participate in the round. So we have most of the rounds full, actually. We just need the lead. So that's what I'm working on now. We just started going out to VC companies two weeks ago to try and get a term sheet for the, for the round. And you are under the umbrella of uh, the Blockchain Founders Fund uh, as a portfolio company. Is that correct? Yeah, Ali is one of our uh, advisors. T tell us about uh, what, what you get from this uh, partnership as we are closing, uh, as yeah, we are yeah. approaching our close. Ali's a really good friend, uh, a close friend. And I think what, when we initially signed Ali onto the company, Inventor and, and, and BFF, our thought was there's a lot of use cases for our technology that aren't music. And so it was really thinking towards the future. So for example, we've had a couple of film and TV companies start asking us because stream track, media tracking is media tracking. Like they, they want to use us for video platforms. So we have an OTT provider that, that's an aggregator of video using us to track programmatic ads inserted now. We have a couple of telcos who are like, hey, I'd like to use your tracking service um, as an analytics dashboard internally because we have so many different delivery channels and, and disparate uh, sort of analytics and your system will centralize all of this data into one place for us. And so the reason we brought Ali in really was, hey, look, we have this high power, high throughput blockchain that we've built that we filed 30 patents for. We have 11 of the patents fully granted. Uh, we have patents in six countries now. So how do you use this technology? What are the adjacent verticals that you could potentially use this for? We believe we're inevitable in music. We think that we will own the music space. I believe that we will be generating 160 to $200 million revenue per year uh, in the next five years. I, the question is where you go after music. Like we can still keep growing in music. I think the end outcome in music is that in music alone, we could probably generate a billion dollars worth of revenue. But what are the other like larger opportunities? Is it video? Is it advertising tracking? Is it as an analytics tool for telcos? Is it video games? So Ali's just breadth of exposure to blockchain tools and the different use cases and how they might be used in private enterprise is important. And that was something that we really valued bringing them in was like, hey, how does this, how does this company position itself after music? And where should we be looking and where are the best opportunities for our unique technology? Is profitability relevant or uh, it's not in your plans? I think after this round, we'll be profitable. Like once we stand up the uh, these 18 streaming services, like um, I actually am not sure if we'll need another round, to be honest. Like the, we will be generating so much cash. These contracts are so valuable. A contract with a really large label is, could be 30 to $50 million annually because they own, let's say they own 77 sub labels. It could be a million dollar contract with each one of those labels. So even though they decide on it centralized, it actually is coming off the P&Ls from 77 clients. And so it's, um, it's an interesting use case where you have a small group of people who could generate or stakeholders who could generate such significant capital. I'm not sure that we will need another round after the series A. Once we stand these services, services up, I think it's game over. So it'll be interesting. So I, I don't know. Like it'll be really, uh, we will be highly profitable. The question will be, which, where do we go with that? You know, like, do we want to attack another industry? Maybe the unit economics won't be as great. Maybe we need an actual sales team. 
you know, one of the most amazing things that we've been able to do as a company is, is build an advisor board that helps us knock these doors down. So like we have the former prime minister of Canada, Stephen Harper. We have the former CEO of Sony. We have the former chief legal of Universal, Brian Turner, who built the entire rap category up. So he signed NWA and Dr. Dre, and I think distributed Jay-Z's first album, like sold $2 billion worth of music in the 90s. Like we have guys like that that are helping us quickly gain adoption in the music industry and women like that that are quickly gaining adoption in the music industry and i think that the question becomes that is a really big unfair advantage in music how how does that mimic itself in video how does that mimic in video games do you need an entire sales team or enterprise team what's the cost of that how does that affect our unit economics at that point there's a lot of questions around how we're going to scale in adjacent verticals but I think what we bring ourselves back to is that there's a billion dollar like annual revenue opportunity in music alone. So this business alone is big enough to support a very massive venture back company, but how much bigger could we get? And I think that's, that's the part that I'm excited about is kind of the next step is, you know, what does this look like when you're attacking four or five different verticals? And, and I think that that's, that's the kind of really fun, you know, yeah. mental gymnastics to do. Yeah. Uh, Andre, it was a pleasure uh, talking ab about uh, your plans and uh, I would like to wish you all the best with Series A and uh, we will be surely watching uh, what BitTap does uh, in the future. Thanks. The only other thing I want to say is like if anyone's like if there's ever any entrepreneurs that might be listening to this is find yourselves great co-founders, you know, like Morgan, my co-founder, I've for 10 years. Uh, we went to business school together, thinking through the strategy. He's my co-CEO. We run this company together. Poriam, our CTO uh, and co-founder. Like I could, we could have never built this without such an amazing engineering talent like him. And so I think finding yourself the right team early is so critical. So if there's any founders out there, uh, to me, that's step one. Everyone thinks raising venture money means that you've succeeded. It just means that you've had a chance to start the start the game, right? Like you need the team that can execute. So if, if you're diversifying outside of venture and there's anybody that's listening to this, that's a, a founder, I just, I just uh, tell them, you know, find yourselves incredible co-founders because it's, it's a tough journey and, and you want to have the right team around you for sure. And yeah. that's, to me, that's step one. This so, is great. But I appreciate you having me. Thanks. This is great advice. Uh, and for sure, we have entrepreneurs in our audience. Okay, Andrew, we'll talk later. Cool. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.